If you're if you're journaling, I'll give you a second to grab your journal and your pen and get ready to go, your electronic Bible or device or whatever you're using this morning. Go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter number 4. And uh, I'm going to just remind you of a few things we talked about last week in chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll deal with chapter number 4 this morning. Uh, surely during this time of crisis, you've had the opportunity to put your love into action. Uh, maybe even this last week, just as Jeremy and I were talking about you, you were baking for someone or you went and bought groceries for someone or you just called and encouraged someone. Maybe you met a neighbor that you really didn't know before, but now you had a conversation and you've, you've given them the opportunity to, to care for them. Surely you've had a chance during this crisis. If not, you surely will in the next few weeks to demonstrate your love, love in action. It's important for all of us to realize that nothing really reveals what people are really like, like a moment of crisis. When a crisis like this or some national, uh, natural disaster or national emergency happens, uh, people's character, their belief system is revealed by how they behave in a moment of crisis. I've always been fascinated personally by reading accounts of the, the Titanic and how people behaved that night. Uh, I don't know why the Titanic fascinates me, but I've read a lot of books about it. And uh, uh, it was so, I, I think what fascinates me is it was this unsinkable ship sunk on its first voyage. You know, it's just the, the whole irony of everything related to the Titanic uh, amazes me. And there's so many sub stories uh, in, that, in that tragedy. Uh, as I've been reading books about how people behave during those hours, I mean, there were just literally some critical hours that lives would either be saved or lost. Uh, one of the stories I came across was a story about one of the passengers on the Titanic. Uh, he was a pastor in London. His name is John Harper. And uh, he was a widower. And he had been a, a guest previously at Moody Church in Chicago, one of the most famous churches in all of America, especially during this time period of 19, 12, 13, 14, in this early uh, part of our history uh, of Moody Church was really setting the pace for, it would be almost like a mega church in that day, setting the tone for Christianity in, in America. Uh, Harper was a guest there. He had preached there before with some great success in revival type, crusade type meetings. They had asked him to come again. So he had bought a ticket on the Titanic and had sailed from, or selling from London to New York to make the trip then to Chicago. Uh, he was a widower, as I said, he was traveling with his sister, Jessie, and also with his little six-year-old daughter named Annie. And when the Titanic hit the iceberg late at night, he immediately went and got his daughter, found his sister, and he was able to get his sister and his daughter aboard lifeboat number 11 very quickly. He could have himself jumped into lifeboat number 11 uh, there was no one restricting him, but he put his sister in, he grabbed his daughter, his own testimony, kissed her, and he said to little six-year-old Annie, I'll meet you again someday. Put her in the lifeboat. It was very clear from the way that happened. He had no intention of getting in the lifeboat, but the record says that he turned from them after he put them in the lifeboat and he ran up and down the decks of the Titanic, crying out these words, women, Children and the unsaved quickly get into the lifeboats. 
So that went on for a little bit, you know, that the lifeboats didn't fill to capacity, instead uh, stranded 1,500 and more passengers on the decks. They could have taken and rescued much more, but everyone was in such a state of panic. Again, their beliefs and their character was revealed in a moment of crisis. Uh, Harper and those 1,500 plus passengers who were stranded on the Titanic, obviously the ship you know, went through all kinds of gyrations and eventually the ship began to break in two just before it would plummet to the bottom of the ocean floor. As the ship began to break in two, the passengers began to jump off into the icy water. John Harper joined them and jumped into the water. When he hit the water, he was wearing a life jacket. He began to swim passenger to passenger. Uh, you can imagine the shock of hitting that ice water in the middle of the night and the panic and what your body's going through, the shock, uh, the hypothermia that's about to set in. As quickly as he could, he swam passenger to passenger, urging them to put their faith in Jesus Christ before it was too late. He swam over to a young man who was clinging to some debris that was floating. He said to the young man, would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late? And the young man refused. He said, I, that's, I, I don't know if he was in shock or if he was just in hardness or what, but he just said, no, I don't want to receive Christ. Leave me alone. So Harper removed his own life jacket, threw it to the young man and said, since you're not saved, you need this more than I do. And he gave away his life jacket. Pastor Harper began to swim to the other people that were nearby and he began to engage them one by one with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after a few minutes now, he's beginning to feel the effects of, of hypothermia. He swam back to the young man that he had given his life jacket to and said, are you sure you won't pray and receive Jesus Christ as your savior tonight? The young man said, yes, I will. And he led him to faith in Christ. Of the 1,528 people that went into the icy water that night, the record says that only a handful were rescued from the water. Among them was this young man wearing Harper's life jacket. We know all this story is true because four years later, the young man went public in Ontario and recounted all of the details of that tragic night. The young man tells the story and he says, before Pastor Harper was overcome by the icy waters, his last words that I heard him utter to the perishing passengers were these words, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not only did Pastor Harper's actions that night prove the depth of his belief in Jesus Christ, but his actions proved his love for his fellow man. Let me say it another way. Harper's worldview was transformed by his faith in Jesus Christ. It was his belief system that caused him to act a certain way in this moment of crisis and he becomes now to us a beautiful, wonderful testimony of how believing in Jesus Christ and loving people are two things that go hand in hand for us. 
Now, in John chapter 3 last week, John taught us that each believer has the Holy Spirit living in their heart, and that presence of the Holy Spirit in us is an assurance that we are God's children. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, if he's convicting you, if he's comforting you, that's a proof that you are a born-again child of God. Today, John's going to grab that thought as we go into chapter 4, and he's going to contrast further the spirit of God that's living in the believer versus the spirit of Antichrist that characterizes this world. So, first of all, this morning, let's remember that not every spirit is from God. For someone to say, I'm spiritual, that's not the same as saying, I'm godly or I'm born again, or I'm saved, or I'm a believer in God. Spiritual can mean anything. There are many spirits, and not all spirits are from God. Let's read 1 John chapter 4, verse number 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, the big takeaway from these verses is that God has not left us here in fear of these evil spirits. He's not left us to, uh, you know... Uh, huddle together and shelter and and be superstitious, you know, and say, oh gosh, there's evil spirits everywhere and they're going to get me and I'm so afraid. That That's not the spirit. That, that That's not what God said we were to behave like. Instead, God says, be confident, be bold. I've given you tools of discernment. And there is a simple test that every believer can uh, take, that can exercise, that will reveal if a spirit is from God or not. Now, since we have the ability to be interactive in the service, let's get ready to start commenting. Here's your first opportunity. If you were testing a spirit to see if it was from God, what question would you ask someone if you were testing a spirit? Go ahead and comment your answer. And while you're commenting, I'm going to read verse 2 again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There's a simple test to recognize the Spirit of God. It involves two things. First, it involves a proper recognition of who Jesus is, God, God's Son, and secondly, it involves a proper recognition of where he is from and where he went. In other words, he was from heaven and he came to earth and he went back to sit on the throne of the universe. Now, any spirit that fails this test is not from God. Now, in your comments, I would hope there some flavor like this. If you wanted to test, I bet there's some wild answers, aren't there, Jeremy? Yeah, 
Uh, Liz says, does it line up with the word? Okay, awesome. Does it line up with the word of God? Stephanie Perryman says, Good answer, Liz. Who, who is Jesus? Good answer, Stephanie. Okay. So it should sound something like this. If you want to test if a spirit's from God or if it's a spirit of Antichrist, you simply ask the person or the spirit, however you want to word this, do you believe that Jesus is God's son sent from heaven? A spirit that aligns with God will say yes. Now, don't be freaky about it, but I just, just there it is, just like that. Uh, I was in a conversation with a demon-possessed man one night. Uh, not in the jungles of India, in, in Fort Worth. And, and I, I sensed he was demon-possessed. And I said, okay, stop talking for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Would you agree that Jesus is the son of God who came in the flesh and lived as a human and was crucified, died and rose again and went back to heaven? And his eyes got wide and he wouldn't answer the question. Instead, he started rambling and it was completely incoherent. The square root of 36 is like, and the vertical and the horizontal, he just started babbling nonsense. And I knew he was possessed. I knew the spirit that was in him was a not the Holy Spirit. It was not a spirit sent from God. Now, if a spirit's from God, it will readily confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the Holy Spirit that bears witness to that message. Jesus is the Son. He is God in a human form. So John continues in verse 4, but we, the believers, but we have the Spirit of God. He's living in us. This is a continuation of the thought from chapter three now. You have God's spirit living in you. So verse four, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. We'll talk about them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, if you struggle with fear, uh, if that's something that creeps into your life and you're, you're, you're very, maybe a superstitious wired person and you're trying to get over your your fear of things that go bump in the night, this might be a great verse to memorize. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Greater is the one living in you than the one that's living in the world. The spirit you have is superior. The spirit living in you is almighty God living in you and you need not live in any kind of fear of the spirits of the world. Notice John's wording, you have overcome them. The them word that John is using is a reference to the many antichrists who are already a part of our present reality. Again, John's not talking about the antichrist, some end times figure that's going to show up. That's not the way he uses this word. He's talking about right now, the many antichrists that pull people away from a true knowledge of Jesus, that pull people away from walking in fellowship with God, the people who are Christ deniers, they could be world rulers, but John actually uses the word more in line with people who defect from within the church. You've overcome because the spirit of God is living in you and that spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is greater, more powerful than the spirit that is of this world. Let's look at verse number five. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, John can be very pointed. He's not afraid to call people, listen, if you say you have no sin, you're liars, you know. I mean, he can be very pointed. He's not, not a jerk, but he can be right, just be very clear, okay? And here he's being very clear. He said, there are two spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. You're, it's one or the other, and it's clearly defined. And his language is very, very interesting. He said, the world listens to its own. Let me I put it in some, maybe some simpler English for you this morning. The world follows its own authorities. The world listens to its own voices. The world quotes its own people. The world follows its own code. The world lives by its own values. It should not come as a surprise to us that the world does not hear us, that the world is not, we would say, on the same wavelength as God's children. John's very clear about this. We get it. But here's where John gets pretty stern. John does have an expectation that the children of God would listen to the elders of the church. John does have an expectation that the church would promote God's values and not the world's values. John says the world's promoting its own values. The church doesn't need to promote the world's values. Church needs to promote God's values. He goes so far as to say that those who listen to the truth are demonstrating that they do know God because they hear their ear is tuned to the truth and the spirit in you will bear witness to that. And here's his second big thought because God's people are characterized by love. So embrace this for a moment. We who are God's people, the overriding, the, the, the great uh, characteristic, the great nature of our born-again lives is love. God's people are characterized by love. Now, I want to remind you that John's not really writing this in outline form. John just keeps circling to the same subject. So he's going to circle back to the Spirit abiding in you. He's going to keep circling back to love, and God is love, and we are to love just like we talked about John Harper's actions and our own actions during this time of crisis, he's going to keep talking about love in action. He's constantly challenging his disciples to love. And here's, here's the Apostle John's rationale. His rationale is love is from God. Therefore, if you truly know God, then you will love. You will love God. You'll love others. Let me read his own words. Verse number seven, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, wait for it, God is love. Now, for those of you who are journaling, giant star right here by this verse, circle it, underline it, flashing neon, highlight, highlight, draw a picture, whatever you've got to do, because you've come to one of the most pivotal three words in the entire word of God now. God is love. I want you to also, if you're journaling, make a notation, or if you're making notes in your Bible, make a notation that connects verse 8 to verse number 16, because in just a few minutes, 
John's going to circle back to God is love again. It's found down in verse number 16. So draw an arrow or make a connection from verse 8 to verse 16, where both verses proclaim emphatically, God is love. Now, let me, let me give you some Bible study ideas again. Let me give you some, some higher thoughts in these next few minutes about this concept of God is love. Remember, we don't study the Bible to know more Bible. We're not trying to create Bible scholars as a goal. We're not trying to create theologians as a goal. That is not the goal of Christianity. We are not trying to learn more Bible to know more Bible. We study the Bible to better know God. What we're trying to create is a, a team, a family, a body of believers who know God better in 2020 than we knew him in 2019. We're trying to raise up a generation of parents who are leading their children through the parenting process every day and week and year of their life for our kids to better know God than they knew him in the previous days. We don't think you arrive at any point to this sinless perfection where we've got it all figured out. We're not even trying to maybe figure it all out. We're trying to know God and we're trying to have a better relationship with God to know him better. And I might even say to be open that we would allow God to know us better. And I want to imply that God doesn't already know everything about you, but we tend to build walls and we want to pull those walls down continually because in our deepest being, we actually want to know and we want to be known by others. That's why our small groups, uh, our discipleship groups are so important. You know, I, sometimes I'll even have conversations with people like, ah, that's not for me. And even when I'm talking to them, I know in their inner being, deep down inside, they really want to be known by someone. They're just scared that if someone knows them, they won't like what they see. We all have a deep uh, desire this is what makes marriage so special. You're in a relationship with someone who is going to know you, who does know you snore at night, who does know all about you, and they choose to love you in spite of any fault they might discover in your life. And it's such a peaceful, deep, abiding love that it transcends almost every other relationship in our lives, maybe outside our relationship with God. God says, I want to know, I want... I want to know you in that way. I want you to know me in that way. I love you. So now with that said, John is teaching us something incredibly profound about the very nature of God. Here's what's profound about God. God is love. Now let this sink in because love isn't merely an attribute of God. God has a lot of attributes that are wonderful attributes like, like mercy and grace. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is merciful. But the Bible never says God is mercy. The Bible never says God is grace. But the Bible does say God is love. To say God is love, his very nature is love, is to say that all of his activity is based in love. To say God is love, it means that he is centered his very being is centered in love. His very nature is love. And all that he does is loving activity. Everything that uh, 
he executes will be executed in love. Here's a chance to message now. Let's get ready. Grab your phone. In what ways have you experienced God acting out of love? Let me give you some ideas while you're thinking and while you're commenting. If God creates, God is love. He creates in love. If God rules, then God rules in love. If God saves, he saves in love. If God instructs, then he instructs in love. If he speaks, he speaks in love. Have you ever been blessed by God? If God blesses, then he blesses in love. If God sustains, do you ever feel like there's been a time in your life when God just held you in his hand and sustained you through a circumstance? If God sustains, then you know he sustains in love. The Bible says that God takes care of all of your needs. Listen, if God gives, God gives in love. So I think you're getting the idea now. Yeah, we have his forgiveness, his provision in uncertainty, uh, speaking through other people uh, that's specific to your situation, restoring uh, your relationship with him kind and merciful correction, his faithfulness. So all that he does, yeah. all of those things that you're listing now, they are all God acting in love towards you. Everything he does is an expression of his love because God is love. Now, this is important because this truth about his nature, that he is love, it is his nature, that truth should be transformative in our understanding of God. Let me see if I can make this point very, very clear. To view God as harsh or to view God as some grumpy person on the throne of the universe who is upset with everybody who's laughing and celebrating life, that is a false picture of God. That is not what the Bible says about God. To view God as primarily a judgmental and angry God is a false, distorted reality of God. You see, although God may indeed judge, judgment does not define who God is. Love defines who God is. His central identity as proclaimed in the scripture, John says twice, God is love. And it's only by knowing his love that God can truly be known and understood. Any view of God that does not exalt and celebrate the centrality of his love is a deficient view of God. Now, here I am, uh, raised in church all my life, okay? But I've not always viewed God primarily as a God of love. As I've matured in my faith, my understanding of God has matured uh, along the way. And where at times I thought, well, yeah, he's angry and he's really a rule follower and wants me to toe the line or he's really going to be upset. That's a distorted picture of God that I had to grow past. And I had to come to embrace the biblical view of God, the real view of God, uh, because the Bible is nothing more than uh, God as he has revealed himself to us through the scripture. 
We need to celebrate the centrality of God's love. And if we have a false, uh, erroneous view of God, that's something we need to repent of. And we need to even maybe bow our heads here in a few minutes and just say, God, I'm sorry that I misunderstood you because I thought more about you as being angry and, uh, you know, just in, uh, an enforcer of rules uh, in the universe. And that's not really who you are at all. God, you're love. Your very nature is love. And I'm seeing that everything you do is done out of love, for love. You are a God of love. To, to know uh, God is, is really to know love. So let me, let me say it to you this way, maybe in something we can remember. Uh, if you do not know God as love, then you really do not know God at all. I want you to think about this. If you don't know God as love, which is who John proclaims him to be, then really you don't know God. You, you, you have a false view or uh, a little bit of a skewed view. We can repent of that, say, God, I'm sorry, help me to embrace the real view of who you are. Notice verse eight again, the person who does not love cannot know God, for to know God is to know love. And the absence of love in someone's life would reveal the absence of knowing God. So uh, if, if you sense that, wow, I'm not really a loving person, you need to come back to your relationship with God and say, wow, I need to re-engage with God in a new understanding and let that permeate my life. Verse number nine, in this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. For you note takers and journalers, write John 3:16 in the margin, that most famous verse of Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 4, 9 is saying the exact same thing. Uh, it uses the word manifest. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It's not really a word we use today. It means to show or to demonstrate. Um, I, I read through five or six different Bible translations this week. NIV has a, some very good wording on this. Uh, the paraphrase that I read a lot, God's word translation, had a beautiful uh, phrasing of this. Let me share it with you. God has shown us his love by sending his only son into the world so that we could have life through him. Instead of the word manifest, they, they cleared it up a little. God has shown his love by sending his only son. So what it means to us is that Jesus laying down his life is how we know what love is. And, and the gift of life that we received through the sacrifice of Christ is the demonstration of God's love for us. It's exactly what Paul said in the book of Romans, that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then John says, now we are forever connected to this life, this life in God. So another way that we would say this in Christian circles is we have eternal life. We're forever connected to the source of life, which is God himself. And now the life that we're living as born again children of God, this life that we're living is lived through him. Paul understood the exact same thing so when Paul wrote to the Galatians, the European Christians, Paul wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's almost a restatement of the exact same truth. That's Galatians 2.20. You can write there in the margin. All right, let's go down to verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've already covered the word propitiation a few weeks ago, but let me just mention again, you can write in the margin, 1 John 2, 2. This is where we first talked about this word propitiation, chapter 2, verse 2. Propitiation just means this, that by dealing with God's righteous wrath, by his death on the cross, Jesus has ensured that all of your sins and all of your guilt has been taken away forever. And that means both propitiation and expiation we talked about in chapter two. It means the crime has been expunged. It means erase, it's gone. If we were to go to the record of your sins and open to your name in the book, there would be no crime there. There would be no transgression there. It's been expunged. It's been covered. Now, it wasn't just blotted out. Somebody paid for it. That's the propitiation side. Christ laid down his life. God loved you and sent his son. And the sacrifice of Christ was enough. It was sufficient to pay the price and to expunge the record and to wash our sins clean. So John is describing God's love as both primary and prior. I want to say it this way because it helps you understand the following verses. God's love is both prior and primary. God's love is prior in that it precedes ours. His love came first is what I'm saying. It precedes our love because the scripture is clear. He first loved. He loved so that we could love because we weren't capable of loving in this way until he loved us. God's love is primary to ours because no love is possible without the foundation of God's love. Now our love can flow out of his love as a source, but our love can only follow his love. His love is prior and primary. Look at verse 11 now, beloved. If God so loved us, if God loved us like this, we ought also to do something. Here's a great place to comment if you want to comment. Since God loved us in this sacrificial way, by putting our needs ahead of his own. If God loves us like this, we ought to do something. So I'll let you interpret what that something is. What should we do? And it doesn't have to all be the same answer because we can put our own nuance on this. It'll all be based in love. We ought to lay down our lives for others. We ought to share the gospel with a world that's perishing like John Harper did. We ought to let the love of God transform our lives so that we live a different way. We ought to be the light of the world. We ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to, I'll let you just fill in those blanks this morning. 
Yeah, we should impart our life to at least someone. We should love. Pause on that a moment. Yeah. So one, who wrote that? Johnny Webster. Johnny Webster, you grade A student. Well, to impart our love, our life into someone else. Listen, do you know the power? If just everybody watching right now made one disciple this year. So, so the Johnny, power of that. So Johnny's disciple also commented. Oh, wow. Jason Meyer said we should love one another as he loved us and disciple them. And that's exactly what the original disciples got from Christ and kept passing on, which is why we're here this morning, gathered around open Bibles and with our church family to make disciples who can make disciples. That is the power of we ought to. We ought to make disciples. We ought to love our neighbor. When we get back to work in social setting, we ought to let our light shine. Just know that the Bible has a we ought to connected to this, this concept of sacrificial love. God's action directed towards us through Jesus' sacrifice has opened up a treasury of selflessness where every believer can draw from that treasury and find the resources to sacrificially love others. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. John takes the thought a different direction. Now, no one's ever seen God. Simple enough, right? God's invisible. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I want you to write, if you're taking notes, uh, Exodus 33, verse number 20. Write it right there in the margin. Obviously, that'll be Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt way back there in the Old Testament. When Moses is on Mount Sinai conversing with God, God uh, speaks to Moses and says, uh, you know, here's what I want you to do. And Moses is like, okay, I hear you, but I can't see you. I want to see you. And God has a little conversation with Moses and says, you'd explode. <laughs> you'd vaporize. You'd, 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 you couldn't, you can't handle, you couldn't, you couldn't handle being in my presence in that way. I can't fully reveal myself to you. Uh, it, it almost like being exposed to pure energy somehow. He said, no man has seen God at any time and lived. But I will cover you with my hand and give you a peek at my glory. And, and just that peek, if you would, at, at the, the helm of God's garments, kind of the way at the train, uh, the tail of the comet is kind of the way it's worded. Just that peek at the afterglow of where God had previously been was enough to transform Moses's very appearance into a shining radiant being. He was transformed because he had seen God. And we talked a little bit about that, that last week. But here's the concept John's getting at. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse number 12, this idea of God being invisible is going to come up again in verse 20. If you want to go ahead and draw an arrow down there, Verse 20 and verse 12 are connected. They both make an allusion to the invisibility of God. And here's what John is doing. John is preempting your false objection that because God is invisible, we can't truly know him. So John anticipates somebody's going to say, but John, I can't, if I can't see God, then I really can't know him, can I? And so John preempts the question twice, verse 12 and verse 20. And John says, no, the opposite is actually true. God, even though he can't be seen, God...
absolutely can be known. He can be known in a personal way. He can be known in a relational way. He is known through that personal relationship that is founded in his love for us. And our knowing him in a relationship is evidenced then in our love for other people. Let's read verse 13 now. If you're underlining, I want you to start underlining the word abide. It's going to show up five times in these next four verses. Here we go. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father hath sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now he's going to say it again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Now he uses that word abides enough in those few verses that you're getting the message. This is a life. This is a forever. I'm saying it's a forever relationship. You're forever in God by trusting in Jesus Christ. And he has taken up residence in your life by his spirit. You've put your trust in him. He has taken up a residence in your life. And you say, well, am I in him or is he in me? Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what Paul said also. That is that kind of duality where we are in Christ, we're in God, and God's spirit is living in us. Okay, get ready to message some answers here. I'm going to ask you a series of questions based on those verses. In verse 13, just look at verse 13 for a moment. In verse 13, what is the evidence that we are in this abiding relationship with God? God's given you a clear, distinguishing evidence that you are in a relationship with him. I'm going to read verse 13 again. By this we know that we abide or we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the answer should sound something like this. The evidence that we are in abiding relationship with God is I have his spirit living in my heart. Now, you know you have the spirit living in your heart because he's not a silent border. He's not a silent resident. Uh, my boys are home from university. The house is not silent these days. The grand puppy is here. The house is filled with sounds and noises. And I know you can't hear them right now because we've knocked them all unconscious, tied them up and sequestered <laughs> them where they can't be heard on the microphone. But listen, the house has been filled with music and laughter and dogs barking and games being played and uh we're we're celebrating life over here when the holy spirit came to live in your heart he didn't come to be silenced and put in a quarter corner of your life he came to live he wants to sit at the table with you he wants to walk with you he wants to go to work with you we don't leave him at home when we go to the high school or the university he goes with us He's always with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He guides us into the truth. He is a comforter. He is an encourager. 
As I said last week, you may be alone, but you're never, uh, I'll say it wrong, you may be lonely, but you're never truly alone. And I think sometimes the Holy Spirit's just waiting for us to reach out to him. And maybe during these days of quarantine, it's really quarantine, but, you know, shelter in place. Yeah, distancing, social distancing. Uh, maybe you're saying, well, I'm so lonely sitting here at home. Listen, reach out to the Holy Spirit. He's right there. Ask him, hey, would you speak to me? Would you fellowship with me? In these days when I'm social distancing, would you make your presence known to me? Maybe I could, in these days, learn to hear your voice and, and tune, tune my ear to your channel very clearly. And I could maybe reinvigorate my, my walk with God and my relationship with you in these days. Let's look at verse 14 now. Verse 14, you can message your answer. Why did God send his son to the earth? John's very clear about the answer to this. And again, John's the one who wrote the gospel of John. And here he's building on some of the teaching of Jesus. Verse 14, and we have seen, now John's an eyewitness, of course, and testify that the father has sent his son, dot, 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 to be the savior of the world. So that could be answered in your words a lot of different ways. God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, true. But God sent his son also to die on the cross and rise again to be our living savior, not just a sacrificial savior. God sent Jesus into this world to show his love. Again, this is the demonstration of God to show his love to the world. So there could be many good answers you could give to that question of why did God send his son to this world? But you have to know whatever answer you give, it's based in love because God is love. All right, let's, let's try verse number 15. We're back to the same question again as verse 13. What is the evidence in verse number 15 that we're in an abiding relationship with God? He gives you a different proof now. What new evidence is he revealing of your relationship with God? Let me read verse 15. Whoever confesses, that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So your answer would be more in line with, uh, I know God lives in me in an abiding relationship because I'm willing to confess, to talk about Jesus, or I'm, I can't keep my mouth shut about Jesus, or I want to share the gospel with people, or, you know, I used to be really pessimistic but since I got born again now I'm very optimistic and I want to I want to encourage people and I want to uplift people you know I didn't I wasn't really a loving person but then I got saved and I began to be discipled by someone and now my life is being changed and I'm becoming a very loving person I care about other people all of those would be great answers for question for verse number 15 let's do one more verse 16 you comment your answer. What is it that we know and believe? What profound truth is revealed in, in, to us in verse 16 that's come to be something we know so profoundly, it's affected us so deeply that it's now become a belief, a core truth that we adhere to. Let me read verse 16. So we have come to know. So we have come to believe the love that God has 
for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. There could be a half a dozen different answers to this question. What is it we know and believe? Well, we know and believe that God is love. That could be one answer. We know and believe that we abide in him. We know and believe that he abides and lives in us. We know and believe the love that God has for us. One of the things you're going to take away from today is, and John just keeps circling back to this language, God is love. And that love of God is so profound and so deep, it's actually who he is. It's his very nature. To know God is to know love. To know love is to know God. If you've ever felt love, you're beginning to understand God. God is love. When you live in love, it is confirmation that you're in a relationship with God. Now, John twice has talked about God being invisible, and therefore, can you really know him? His answer is absolutely. Let, let me give you a thought you can take away and, and reflect on later this week. God's love is meant to be known, and he wants you to trust in his love. His love was all, God was never, God never created us and then said to us, hi, I'm God, you can't know me, don't even try. Now, the prophets do make some statements about God's ways are higher than our ways and all. He does say those things in the prophets, but he doesn't say you can't know God. God was always meant to be known by us. If we go back all the way to Eden, which we will do in a few weeks, we're going to cycle all the way back to Adam and Eve and the creation in just a few weeks and talk about heaven and hell and, and zombies and, and hot spots and all kinds of fantastic things are coming up. But before we get to that, let me just tell you that when God created mankind, he all, it was always for a relationship, which means he didn't just want to know us. He wanted us to know him in a relationship. God's love was always meant to be known. Uh, God's love was always meant to be the source of our love. His love was always meant to be poured out upon us, his creation made in his own image and in his own likeness. He, he chose to pour his love out to us. He chose to love us. And he says, I want you to live in my love. Let me give you John's last thought for this morning. Love triumphs over fear. Let's read verse 17. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, for those of you who are marking in your in your journals or Bibles, let me underline the word perfected. By this is love perfected. I want that word to stand out to you. And then underline the word confidence, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And then underline the phrase, as he is, so also are we in this world. Now let's just take that apart real quick and wrap this up. Perfected means brought to maturity, brought to completion, uh, brought to its ultimate goal, its ultimate uh, uh, perfected state. Perfected means that love that is lived out on this earth by the disciples of Christ is love that has reached its ultimate goal. See, now we often think, well, the ultimate goal was God loving us and sending his son. That's the foundation of love. Love reaches its perfect goal. Now, 
when we trust Christ and then we mirror that love to others. Love has reached its perfection, its completion, its heights. The NIV uses this phrasing, love is made complete when we live it out as a result of Christ, God loving us. Let me read God's word version. It does the same similar thing. First John 4, 17 from God's word translation. God's love has reached its goal in us so that we look ahead with confidence to the day of judgment. While we are in this world, we are exactly like him in regard to love. This complete love gives us confidence. Now, God's people were not meant to cower in fear. God's people were meant to live with boldness and confidence. Since God's love is the foundation upon which all the Christian faith and belief is built, his love is our exclusive source for confidence at the day of judgment. Anyone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ has no fear for the day of judgment. If you're worried about what the future judgment might look like for you, dismiss that right now. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, John's about to say. We have confidence in the day of judgment because his love is the source of our eternal life. Now let's deal with this last phrase. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Now I'm going to let you be the theologian for a minute. And let you comment, verse 17. What is your interpretation of that last phrase in verse number 17? As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Let me ask the question this way. What about Jesus are we to be living out in this world? What is true of Jesus that we are to be living out right now in this present world? As he is, so are we in this world what do you think the interpretation of that phrase is? Or what are the implications? What's the theology behind this? Or, the, or what, what can we do this week? What can we do tomorrow morning or Tuesday or Wednesday to fulfill what John is challenging us with? As Jesus is, so are we in this world. What is your answer to that interpretation? I'm going to give everybody a second to make a comment. They'll start popping up here pretty rapidly. Live out love. Live out love. Okay, that's a good answer. Live out love. That could be a t-shirt. That's a good t-shirt. Spread spread the gospel. Exemplify his love. As he is. Yeah, be, be a representation of love. That's beautifully said. Who said that? Sean Williams. Sean Williams, very good. Love unapologetically. Yeah. As he is, just think about this, whatever Jesus is, that's what we're to be in this world. Light, love, righteousness, the attributes of Christ, the essence of Christ, the nature of Christ, because he's living in us. And we're connected to him in a relationship. We have been a recipient of God's love. And that should transform us to be like him as he is. That's what he wants us to be in this world. Let's pause right there because I think that's enough for our hearts to to hold on to this week. Pastor David, come and.
have a seat right here and he's going to close us in prayer. You've got a lot to think about now. We've talked about a lot of different aspects of God's love. One, we might hold fundamentally a wrong concept of God. Yeah. I think a lot of people think he's angry. God is not angry. Right. Uh, listen, a lot of pastor friends of mine, uh, I, I pulled them like, what are you preaching these days? Yeah. Uh, to see if they're preaching the nature of God is love or if they're preaching, see, God's playing the universe with the, yeah, no. No, the world's not ending and 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 I'm not saying God doesn't, ju- but he, that's not who he is. Yeah. God is love. Yeah, that's good. And he's infused that into our lives and that's what he wants us to be. As he is, so are, we. so are we in this world. Let's think about that this week, okay? You have a chance to live it out. Pray for us. Father, we're so thankful um, for Jesus and for the example of Jesus being sent to us to show us this love. Uh, just like we read today, you first loved us, and so now we can display that love that you first given to us. Uh, we're so thankful that you're not a God who, who just sits on the throne and yells at us and throws lightning bolts and just judges us all the time, but instead you want to know us. You want to have relationship with, with us, and you want us to know you as well. We want to ha- You want to have this back-and-forth conversation with us all the time where the Spirit is communicating with us and we with you, and what a lovely thing that that is. We, we so appreciate and thank you for that, and we are so thankful that we are linked to you by love through faith. Father, I pray this week that we would be confident knowing that you love us and that you aren't just out there to try to get us, but instead you were trying to usher us into further levels of relationship with you and further devotion to you and further being in love with you. I pray that this week we would check our thoughts, check our actions against the um, the measurement of love. Our, is what we're doing, is what we're saying, are our attitudes lining up? Are they adjusting to love or are they coming out of us rather than out of you and out of your spirit? So help us this week to link up with you, to sync up with you in such a way that we would love others well. We would live out exactly what we're supposed to. We're supposed to be like you as you were and help us this week to love our families, to love our coworkers, to uh, fall more in love with you as we abide in you this week and you abide back in us. We love you and we pray Uh, This week, Father, that you would rest and reign over our church members, God, and that you would lead us by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.